Amen. You all can be seated. You can open up your copy of the Bible to the book of Hebrews. We're going to start chapter 8 this morning. We took a, a break last week for one week uh, to take a look at a, a text from the book of Acts. Uh, but we're going to be um, back in Hebrews chapter 8 today. Um, but I wanted to uh, note one thing. I hadn't planned on this and I didn't tell him I was going to do this. Uh, but there's one person uh, that I am particularly grateful is in the room this morning and standing where he is at the moment. And it's not me. Uh, I am grateful I'm here and that I'm standing here. Uh, but there's another person who I'm particularly grateful is in the room doing one of the things that he loves to do. Uh, and that is our brother Todd, uh, who is in the sound booth back there. I'll tell you why we should be grateful. But uh, And we're going to have him hopefully share some of his story uh, sometime soon, even on a Sunday morning. But not but a few weeks ago, uh, his heart had stopped for numerous minutes while he was in Chicago helping his daughter move, uh, was by all accounts dead, literally. I mean, uh, uh, to an extent where you would not expect resuscitation. Uh, but God has worked a miracle in his body and in his life, and it's been a joy from afar to see. I know you've been here some Sundays, but it's a particular joy to see you getting to, to do something that you love again with us, Todd. And so uh, what a testimony to God's power, and I'm excited for you more and more to hear about it, uh, to know what our Lord can do. But even it was fun this morning to talk with him to imagine what God has done in his life, but then imagine at the final day, the last day, the resurrection of all human beings uh, with bodies that will never have a threat of a heart attack again, have, have no threat of death again. It, it's a joy to get a little taste of God's power uh, that we get to see in Todd's life. I'm grateful that you're here with us, brother. Uh, one other thing before we turn our attention to this text. Um, last Sunday, the reason we took a break uh, from Hebrews, we took one Sunday, there were several young ladies that got baptized, but we also took a Sunday out of the book of Hebrews. Uh, I preached a message from Acts 18 and 19, which if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to listen back to it. It was connected in some ways to a proposal that the pastors are making uh, to modify some of how we connect membership in our church with baptism. Uh, I won't belabor that here, uh, but I was trying to lay some foundational ideas from that text that are part of why we are recommending that. Um, but So you can go back to listen to that, especially if you're a member and weren't able to be with us. Uh, last Sunday would really encourage you to take a listen to that. But also would encourage you to come, and this is for members, but anybody who'd like to come this Wednesday at 6 p.m. Uh, over in room 112, over on this side of the building. We're going to have a Q&A time about that subject where it, does, and it doesn't even have to just be cues like if there's maybe C's like concern or things that you're confused about or things you're like man help me understand this more and you just have uh, some rub that you feel it doesn't just have to be questions there could be concerns shared as well we want to have a conversation pastors members non-members alike uh, who may be interested in, in exploring more of why we're recommending that what the logic is what the heart is behind it what the implications of that are i uh, would love to have any of you or all of you come uh, this wednesday that would like to at six uh, so that'll be over here on this side of the building all right there's a lot of stuff going on in the life of the church. I'll share some of it rapid fire at the very end of the service, but we're, we're trying to come to the text of the scripture today. So Hebrews 8 is where we're going to be. Before we dive into the sacred word of God, I want to uh, use an illustration from a very frivolous, honestly kind of dumb movie uh, that was popular a couple decades ago. And do not hear this as an endorsement of the movie. I always have to make that caveat. There was a movie called Zoolander years ago uh, that some of you know. 
uh, there is a, what, I don't need to explain the whole story. Uh, it's a very dumb movie, dumb humor. Uh, it's very low humor. Um, but uh, there's this one scene, and I think you'll see how it connects into this text when we read it and sort of the point I think this author was getting at in this text. But there, So there's these two characters in the movie. One's played by Will Ferrell, who many of you may know who he is. One's played by uh, Ben Stiller. He's the guy called Zoolander. And they're these male models, and the movie is kind of making fun of how ignorant they are, how kind of dumb or naive they are at times. And there's this one scene where Will Ferrell's character is trying to tell Ben Stiller's character that he wants to do him this honor of building a school named after, or not named after him, but in his honor. And uh, like uh, Ben Stiller's character is kind of surprised and Will Ferrell's character walks over to this table and there's something covered in like a cloth and he like pulls it off to unveil it uh, that he's going to build him this school and underneath that there's this little model of a school uh, like this little diagram thing this 3D construction of what the school would look like and uh, ben Stiller's character, Derek Zoolander, comes over to it. He just kind of gives it this funny look, and he's kind of scrutinizing it, and there's, like, little figuring people and, like, 3D things outside this model building. And you would think he is, like, honored, and wow, this is wonderful. But what he does, he literally takes it and flips it over, like, flips the table over, and he says, what is this? And then he says, a school for ants? And you start seeing where his mind is going, and he says, how can we be expected to teach children to learn to read if they can't even fit inside the building? Uh, and you can just see Will Ferrell's character is like, what on earth? Like, what are you talking about? Like, it was so obvious to Will Ferrell's character, this is not the school. This is like a copy of the school. This is a little model of the school. But in Ben Stiller's character's mind, this is the school. And he's unimpressed by it, flips it over. Uh, he says, we need to make this at least three times that big. <laughs> uh, but you can see, like, it's, it's intended to be a humorous illustration of how dumb this guy is, like that he doesn't connect. This little model isn't the thing. Like there's a bigger, better thing that it's referring to. And we can laugh at him and kind of his stupidity. Uh, but I think this text may help us put a mirror back toward ourselves. Uh, like I think it was intended to do to the Hebrew Christians who originally it was written to, to say, are we really that much smarter? Because God has given us earthly structures and earthly people uh, that are important, that are significant, but that are supposed to be pointers to bigger realities, truer realities. But oftentimes we start to think these are the thing. These are the most important, most supreme form of this thing. And we miss that even these earthly gifts that God's given us of ministers and holy places and things like that are supposed to point to a bigger, grander reality that's taking place in heaven right now. And so uh, I mentioned that story as a humorous example to, to make us kind of turn the mirror on ourselves and think, do we do something similar when it comes to the, the, the places of worship that we come to, to the ministers that God has given to us? Uh, so by way of review, as we come to chapter 8, we need to just remember quickly what the book of Hebrews is even is. 
Uh, it was written to uh, early Jewish Christians, that's the name, Hebrews. Uh, it was written to these people who were tempted to, even as they had come to faith in Jesus, they were tempted to go back to some of the old forms, the old covenant forms of these Levitical priests and to the temple itself and to making sacrifices and all these sorts of rituals that God had given to them. They were tempted to go back to those. And the, the author kind of attacks that temptation, calling them to resist it in all sorts of different ways throughout this book. Most recently, he's been talking to them in chapter 7. We took some weeks to go through this about the, the type of priest that we really need, uh, that, that we need a priest who's different from these Levitical priests. Uh, last uh, Two weeks ago, even as we got to the end of chapter 7, we saw, if you look at chapter 7, verse 26, he gave these adjectives that mention what kind of priest we need. He's, he talks about how this priest needs to be holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Those were not true about their earthly Levitical priests, but that's the kind of priests we need. And then in this text, he's going to start to tell us the good news, and I kind of spoiled it when I preached a couple weeks ago. We have that priest. He's not just a theoretical priest that we need, but he's a priest that we actually have in the heavenly places. And so uh, this has significant import uh, as we think about who these people are, why he's addressing them, why he's giving them the arguments that he was. It has huge import for us to think about why he's saying what he's saying. Uh, these people were tempted to fall back to those shadows, fall back to the copies of the heavenly realities. And they weren't tempted like Zoolander was tempted in that silly scene to smash the little model uh, and to think this is dumb, trivial, what their temptation was to do, quite the opposite, and idolize the model. To think, man, this is such a special, holy thing. There's nothing that could be better than this. Uh, and the, the author is going to seek to address that temptation in their hearts and press them to Jesus again and again, to heaven again and again, not to their Levitical priests in Jerusalem, not to the temple in Jerusalem. And so that said, I want to read this text. We're just going to look at the first six verses of chapter 8 today. And then next week, I think we'll finish the chapter, Lord willing. But I'm going to read... Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, and then we'll walk back through it and see what the Spirit would have to say to us through, through this text. The unknown author of Hebrews continued writing under the inspiration of the Spirit and wrote this. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest to also, also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. This is the word of God. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. 
want to point out one thing uh, near the end of this text, and then we'll walk back up through the start of it. Uh, this text ends, verse 6, by him talking about how Jesus has obtained a ministry that is more excellent than the ministry of the Levitical priests, more excellent than the ministry there that would take place in the tabernacle or in the temple. Uh, and he, starts, he ends this text by talking about how Jesus mediates a better covenant, a new covenant. Next Sunday, we're going to extensively see what that covenant is, what it's like, who's part of it, how we become part of it, those sorts of things. But in this text, uh, he's saying that the ministry Jesus has been given is better. It's more excellent than the the ministry that was God-ordained, but that was lesser than the ministry of the Levitical priests. And these people receiving this letter needed to hear this. Right? Because they're tempted to idolize the shadow, idolize the copy that was here on earth and miss that Jesus has a ministry in the heavens that far surpasses them, that even in some ways replaces them as their earthly ministry. And so that said, I want to summarize the message, and there's going to be two main points kind of baked into this today, but I want to summarize what I think the message of this text is, and I would want to convey to you as my church family this morning from it this way. And this is sort of a more poetic uh, main idea idea today, but it it has the the two points baked into it. I, I think the main point of this text could be said this way, that because of Christ's posture and heavenly place, we should idolize neither earthly minister nor space. That because of Christ's posture and his heavenly place, we should idolize neither earthly minister nor space. And I, I want to explain what, where I see that in this text and what importance that has even for us as people who aren't tempted to go back to Levitical priests or to go to a temple in Jerusalem. But there's things that I think we can learn and should learn from this text as we get to eavesdrop and as we even read it for ourselves. So what do I mean, first point, by Christ's posture? What, what is depicted here? What's the author saying about Christ's posture even currently? as he is in heaven. Uh, this, one of the ways that we can know, and I think he, he is saying this on purpose in this text, one of the ways we can know that Jesus' ministry in heaven is more excellent than the Levitical priest's ministry on earth is the fact that he is seated in heaven. Uh, the fact that he is not standing, but he is depicted again and again as being seated. Look at verse 1 again, the, the beginning of what I read. He says, we have such a high priest, talking about Jesus, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. One who is seated. This is not the first time the author has referenced this. In Hebrews, it's not the last time. He's going to do it a few more times as well. But that language of Jesus being seated at God's right hand draws from Psalm 110. That's a psalm we've seen quoted some already here in Hebrews. It's a very important psalm where David, King David, hundreds of years before this, hundreds of years before Jesus ever arrived, had been given this vision of sorts, or at least gotten to eavesdrop on some of the conversation between Yahweh, or we may call him God the Father, with New Testament language, and the Messiah. And one of the things that David heard God tell the Messiah, that he heard God tell his own Lord, David's Lord, back in Psalm 110, was that Yahweh told that Messiah, sit at my right hand. 
Like that was a directive to this Messiah. And so that becomes this important image for the author of Hebrews. He mentioned it near the very beginning of Hebrews. If you were back with us on food trucks Sunday months and months ago uh, when we were outside in Hebrews 1.3, he had written this at the beginning of the letter, that after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He says it again here in verse eight, or chapter 8, verse 1. He says it again in chapter 10, verse 12. He says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And then he does it a last time in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, where he says presently of Jesus that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is an important idea, uh, for an important reality for the author of Hebrews, whoever that was, that Jesus is seated at God's right hand. And if we didn't know, if, like, if we just pulled that out of context and just know he's seated next to a throne, at the right hand of the throne, we would think he's, the author is talking about Jesus' role as king. Uh, that he's seated like on a throne as king, but he's specifically tying his seatedness with his priestliness, that he is seated not just as a king, but also as a priest, that, that even in his priest activity, he is not standing, he is seated as a priest. And this is in stark contrast, and he's going to really elaborate on this in chapter 10, but Jesus being seated in the heavens as our great high priest is in stark contrast to the standing ministry of the Levitical priests here on earth. Like Levitical priests, those that were commanded by the Old Testament to do certain things on behalf of the people or on behalf of God, their work was one of ongoing activity, right? Again and again, they had things they were called to do. They had to move around. They had to go do things or kill things or spread things or bring things in. They had to dress in certain ways. There was things they had to do again and again and again. Verse 3 says that those priests are appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, right? That implies they're doing things. They're active, moving around in their ministry. And when we read about the tabernacle or eventually the temple that they ministered in or that they ministered outside of, there's tons of furniture described uh, in this. There's a table, there's lampstands, there's curtains, there's all these sorts of things. But one thing that is not inside of the temple was a chair. There was no place. They, they, they would not want to be caught found sitting on the job, right, as a, as a high priest. That was, they were supposed to be up doing things as they tried to approach God, as they approached him. The only seat, if you want to think of it as a seat, in the tabernacle or in the temple was a seat for Yahweh. It was something we call the mercy seat. That was the top of the Ark of the Covenant. That was like where God himself, God the Father, was supposed to sit or reside there in the Holy of Holies. But there was no seat for the priest. Uh, they, they would never have even wanted to be sitting. Their job was to be active, right? And so sitting then... Sitting, I mean, even what you're doing now, like I'm standing trying to preach, trying to do something, right? You are sitting, listening. There's, there's a difference. Not that you're not active, but there's a difference when we're trying to do something, usually we stand. When we're receiving something, we sit. Or when we've finished our work, we sit. Sitting implies a sense of rest, a sense of completion, right? A sense that I'm ceasing from striving, like I'm inactive more than active, right? That's what sitting implies. Standing implies activity. It implies that I need to do more, that there's more to be done. I need to be able to move here or respond to this. I need to be able to move. 
In chapter 10, the author, we'll see this uh, several weeks from now, but in chapter 10, verse 11, the author of this letter makes this point very emphatically. He says, talking about earthly priests, he says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So he's saying those earthly priests, they stand. They're doing stuff again and again, bringing sacrifices again and again. So then for him to say repeatedly in this book, Jesus is seated as a high priest, implies that there is no more work to be done, no more sacrificial work to be done, no more gifts to be offered, that 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 has been done once and for all. And that is good news for us because at the cross, I loved sitting in Dr. Harmon's class this morning. They were reading about the cross from Luke's account. At the cross... Jesus was presenting himself as a sacrifice to God the Father, as a sacrifice that would actually work, that didn't need to be repeated. He was taking on the sins of his people, not putting them onto some bull or ram or a lamb or anything like that, but he was letting those sins be placed on himself so that he could be put to death, that his life could be taken as a substitute, as a sacrifice for his people. And when he offered that sacrifice, once for all, there was no more sacrifices to be offered, right? That, that was an effective sacrifice. So when he then enters into heaven as the ascended, resurrected Christ that he is, he doesn't need to stand at the ready to, oh, when there's some repentant sinner who's wanting to come to you now, God the Father, let me quick offer another sacrifice to let them come near to you. He doesn't need to do that. Right? He has already offered it at the cross. In time and space, he offered a sacrifice once for all that actually worked. And so he doesn't need to be at the ready in heaven, ready to intercede in the sense of offering a sacrifice, because the Father has already accepted his sacrifice once for all. That is why he can be seated. And so even his posture as a priest being seated rather than standing is instructive to us. Uh, that when we see uh, him, we know he is resting. There's a reason at the cross that he said it is finished, right? That his priestly work was done. It was complete. There was no more sacrifice to be made. And this has relevance for these folks who are reading this letter, but it also has relevance for us because I think their temptation, as they were tempted to go back to the Levitical priests, to go back to them and their ministry, Their temptation was to put those earthly ministers, those priests, on a pedestal that God never intended them to be on. As if I have to go back to them. Like I have to go, I have to approach God through them. There was this elevation, this reverence given to these Levitical priests that I don't think they were ever intended to bear. That they were ever intended to actually possess. They even in some ways by wanting to go back to those earthly priests are essentially saying we don't need to go to Christ That what he's done, his ministry for us is not enough. We need these guys to supplement it or these guys to even supersede it and make sure that we stay in God's good graces. This is a temptation to us at times too as human beings who still live on this planet, who still have fallen minds and, and bodies. We can have a temptation to put earthly ministers, whatever shape or form they may take, up on pedestals that they're not intended to have, that they're not intended to stand on. 
And there's this real temptation because they're flesh and blood people. They're people who can give us a hug. They're somebody who we can see they're listening to me. They're someone who I directly hear their voice consoling or giving counsel to me. We can, we can hear them. We can feel them. We can see their activity. We can see that they're doing things to try to help me. There's this bond that we can feel with them. Like, I need this person in a way I sometimes don't even realize I need Jesus because they're flesh and blood right in front of me. And we can be duped into thinking that their activity as a minister here on earth is what I really need to be close to God. Like I'm dependent upon them to do these certain things to get me near to God, to keep me close to God. I, I need them to do that. But I think we need, they needed to learn, we need to learn as well, that the busyness, the activity, earthly activity of earthly ministers is not a sign of their impressiveness or how worthy they are. The fact that we are doing things as ministers in whatever capacity we do, that I'm standing here trying to preach to you, that you minister in different capacities, those activities that we do again and again and have to do again and again are not a sign of our impressiveness, but a sign of our weakness. (laughs) That the things that we do don't actually stick. The things that we do don't actually change you, but the, the, the person that changes you is Christ himself. And so we must learn to not see the activity of earthly ministers as being impressive and a sign we must go back to them that they are our pathway to God but the very repetition of those things should make us see I need a better minister than Mark Goodwin I need a better minister to you because earthly ministers can gain you nothing before God they, they do not dispense grace to you they, they do not impart forgiveness to you Christ alone does that in his heavenly ministries And so I think it should be a warning sign to us, kind of like a light on the dashboard. Maybe this has been true in your life, historically or maybe presently. If if you get to a point in your life where you are more impressed or more drawn to an earthly minister than you are to Jesus, that is a huge concern. Like That happens all the time. We become enamored with some earthly figure, like a flesh and blood person who is on this planet speaking or ministering in different capacities, and we lose subtly our respect for Christ, our awe of Jesus himself, and that must not be. We must engage more deeply, more truly with Jesus himself than we do even with the earthly ministers that he has given to us. As a note in this same vein of the role of an earthly ministry in light of Jesus' heavenly ministry, for those who either are in ministry or who would aspire to ministry, and this was convicting for me to think about this week, we need to be uh, humble enough to recognize that ministerial busyness and activity, doing things in the name of Jesus, is not remotely the same as ministerial superiority. Like we do a lot of comparing of pastors and ministries and churches and who's doing this and how active are they and how, what's their numbers and how, what sort of impact are they having in these particular ways and we set up these different criteria and we can start to just think, I need to just spin my wheels more and more. I need to always do the next thing, always spend more hours, always uh, have this next appointment, always do these more and more things and that is not a sign of health. That is, that is not a sign that we actually understand the good news of Christ, that he has a heavenly ministry that actually affects change. But we start to buy into this idea that I can affect change, that we can affect change if we just work hard, if we just work more hours, if we just uh, are more and more busy. But f- I, I would say it this way, frantic ministers, 
like who are just always spinning our wheels, don't depict a, a healthy view of a seated Christ. Right? If we try to think that, man, my activity needs to be shown to all these people, my busyness needs to be seen by people, in doing that, we're giving a wrong image of what a minister of Christ should be. That, that we have a seated Christ who has done all of the work necessary, but then by our life and our example, we, we do try to do so much and we depict in our life that it depends on me. That it depends on my hard work, on my diligence, on my activity. And we need, even in the approach to ministry that we have, to make sure we're remembering that Christ is seated, that the work has been done, and we to be diligent, but never confuse our role in his. And so in calling you and calling myself to not idolize ministers from this text and what I would call us today to not idolize earthly ministers, I also would say, I want to make this point as well, is we shouldn't just ignore them either. Because sometimes we swing the pendulum the other way and we think, yeah, Christ's ministry far surpasses any earthly minister's work. And so all I need is Jesus, right? So why do I even need these folks? Like, why do I need this person? Why do I need these people in my life when I got a direct line to God through Jesus? That is a huge temptation for us. I I would just remind us, though, even in remembering Christ's ministry infinitely surpasses any earthly minister's ministry to remember that that seated Jesus has given ministers to his people, right? Jesus didn't open the way to heaven to say, yep, just me and you, we're, we're good, just come to me. Like he has given us people, he's entrusted people to us to teach us, to guide us, to correct us sometimes. You read the book of Ephesians and Paul says very specifically that Christ himself has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. The resurrected Jesus has given us people to care for us, to to teach us, to show us things by teaching and by example. And it is absolutely true that only Christ can bring you to God. But Christ has given you people to learn from and to follow their example and to to listen to. We're going to get to this eventually in Hebrews, but in the very last chapter of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 17, the same writer who's talking about the superiority of Jesus' ministry to any earthly ministry, he tells these people, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. And he says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And so even as he's calling them to not idolize ministers, to not raise them up to this status of, I have to go to God through them, he's also calling them to still respect the people that God has entrusted them to, uh, the, the people who are in authority in their life. And so leaders in the new covenant, this, that new covenant that we're part of, that Jesus established, we don't mediate the covenant right? There is one mediator in this new covenant between God and his people, and it's Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the pastors, the overseers, the elders that God entrusts to his church, we don't mediate the covenant that God has established with us. We just seek to care for people, to teach people, but there is one mediator, but there are many teachers. And so let's not idolize earthly ministers, but let's also not ignore them. Okay, so that's what we can, I think, learn from Christ's posture, being seated in the heavenly places and what that implies about his ministry compared to the earthly ministry of the priests. But the second thing, it was in the, the main point baked into it, that I think we can learn from this text is that we can learn about the excellence of his ministry by the place that he ministers. So he is seated, verse 1 says, right, that we have such a high priest, one who is seated, 
But where is he seated? He's not seated in a building in Jerusalem, right? It says that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And then he turns right around, verse 2, and says he is a minister in the holy places, right? Uh, so Jesus is not sitting, the resurrected Jesus is not sitting in a temple in Jerusalem in the Holy of Holies. That building doesn't even exist anymore, but he is seated somewhere, and the place he is seated is in heaven at the right hand of God the Father, and that communicates a ton to us about the superiority of his ministry to that of Levitical priests. Verses 3 and 4, I think he's making this point. He's contrasting the ministry of the Levitical priests, who what they do is they offer these gifts according According to the law, like here on earth, they had specific places that they would go, specific ways that they would offer animals or take their blood, be able to go into the holy places. They offered gifts according to the law. But what he, what he says in those verses, or what he's at least hinting at, at the start of verse 4, is that Jesus is not that kind of priest. Jesus isn't even on earth. Like, by default, the law was giving these directions about offering sacrifices on earth, very specific GPS location of where the temple was, where, the, where they were to offer things. But Jesus is not a priest on earth. He is a di- in a different place, a whole different stratosphere. He is a priest in the heavens. And you probably picked up, there's this language of tents in this passage. There's two different tents uh, that he's mentioning. And he's not talking about just pop-up tents, camping tents, like we maybe think of tents. But he's, he's talking about the first tent you see in verse, I'll, I'll ref, at least the first one I'll reference is in verse 5, right? He, he's talking about how they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Then he talks about this tent. He says, when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God. What that tent is that he's referencing was what we call the tabernacle. Uh, tent, tabernacle, it, it was this tent, but a fancy large tent uh, that God at Mount Sinai, as he was meeting Moses on the mountain and giving him things we know as the law, like the Ten Commandments and the more expanded law, part of what God was telling Moses on that mountain was how to build this special tent called the tabernacle, this place where he would dwell, where God himself would dwell with his people. There were specific dimensions that were shown. Uh, There was measurements given. There was directions about what type of threads should be used in the curtains and how big this space should be and what these certain things should be made of. It's a very specific, very detailed place where God was supposed to live and where he would live. Eventually, that became the more uh, like permanent version of that was the temple that got built in Jerusalem, which was bigger and even more grand. But it was the same idea, this place God would live. But what he points out uh, is fascinating in this text. Because he, he talks about a different tent, right? a better tent. If you put your eyes back up to verse 2, when he's talking about Jesus' ministry, he says that Jesus is a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. And so he's saying Jesus is ministering in a tent, like ministering in a place where God lived, but it's the true tent. It's not this earthly small tent. It is this true tent in the heavens. And this is fascinating. I hope I can do justice to explain this, but if you look at verse 5, 
There's this fascinating connection that whoever wrote Hebrews makes for us. Because in talking about these two tents, he's saying there's a connection between them. The, the earthly tent that the priests here on earth would work in and minister in, and this heavenly tent uh, that exists where God dwells in the heavens. Look at verse 5. He says, when Moses was about to erect that tent, the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, and then he quotes something, right? He quotes there from Exodus chapter 25, verse 40. Exodus 25, 40 was part of the law when God was meeting with Moses there on the mountain. And what this author is pointing out, you go back and read it for yourself, it is fascinating is that as God's about to give instructions about this tent, how it should be shaped, how big it should be, where, like the dimensions of it, what it should be made of, all this stuff, what God says to Moses just before he does as he says, see, Moses, he's saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. That is fascinating. Because uh, he, he, God was saying a lot of things to Moses on the mountain. He was giving him the law. He was telling him all the instructions for how his people were to be lived. But that verse alone teaches us that he didn't just say things to Moses, but he also showed things to Moses. Like visually, he showed him something there on the mountain. And when he was saying, make this earthly tent, this tabernacle where the priests are going to minister and where they're going to offer sacrifices... He was telling Moses, make it like the pattern that I just showed you. Make it like the thing I just revealed to you that you just saw. And I don't know what Moses saw, okay? I don't know if God did with him like he did with the apostle John in Revelation where he kind of gave him a vision of heaven and let him have kind of a, a peek behind the curtain into heavenly realities. That could be. Or maybe he, I don't know, like some sort of, like ancient virtual reality, like showed him some sort of 3D model there of, of the heavenlies and what they were like and where God lived. But somehow he visually showed Moses a glimpse of what heavenly realities are like, where God actually lives in the heavens. And in, the reason this author is pointing this out is because he wants these Jewish folks know who are tempted to go back to the tabernacle or for them to be the temple who are tempted to go back to that earthly tent, he wants them to know from the get-go, like from the get-go when God was telling Moses himself how to build this thing, that was supposed to be like the Zoolander little model, right, of a bigger, grander reality of where God lives in the heavens. It was never intended to be this permanent focal point of your worship that would just last forever. That, yes, it was a holy place and God did himself come to dwell there, but from the get-go, it was to be a pointer to something bigger and better. And when they're tempted to just keep going back to that tent, to go back to that earthly tent, this author's saying, no, like Jesus came to live and die not to gain you entrance into this earthly tent, but to gain you access into the heavenly realities it points to, like to actually go to be with God himself in the heavens once and for all. That is what Jesus has gained for you. And so the tabernacle, I, I remember when I was a little kid, like making these little model cars. I don't know if any of you ever did that. Like it'd have all these little parts and you'd glue them together and super glue and all this stuff. The temple 
the, the tabernacle, this earthly tent, is like that little model car. Like, it, it's cool. Like, it's neat. It looks nice. That thing's not driving anywhere, right? Like, that thing is supposed to be impressive to you because it shows you about the, the more true car that actually can move, that you can hear, that you can drive around. The earthly tent is supposed to be like that. That, yeah, it's cool. It's impressive. It's wonderful. It's holy even in some ways, but it is not the same as the heavenly realities. And Christ ministers there. Like the, the Levites minister here, but this place that he says is like a shadow or a copy. This building is beautiful, but it is a shadow and a copy of the heavens where God and now Jesus himself dwells. And so God never intended for that tabernacle to be the full final focal point of their worship. And of their fellowship with God. It had a long life, but it was a temporary life that was to point them to the heavenly realities. And if Christ has gained us, if Christ had gained them access to God in the heavens, why would they continue to idolize this tent? Why would they continue to idolize and go back to this tent that now really has no meaning because the substance has come, right? Like if you, I was just imagining, like if you, I don't know that this would ever happen in real life, but let's say you're walking down one street corner and you know you're meeting a friend that you haven't seen in a long time and they're coming down the street corner, the the perpendicular street and you're going to meet at this corner but there's a building blocking your view and let's say the sun is over here and as you're approaching that corner you see the shadow of your friend that you haven't seen in a long time approaching but you can't quite yet see them yet but you know it's them right because shadows cast the image of the person you know what it's pointing to how dumb would it be when you both got to the corner you continue to just look at their shadow, like, oh, it's so good to see you. Like, you give them a hug, right? Like, you, you know, this is the person. Like, the shadow was wonderful and exciting until you see the person, right? And then you love the person and you embrace them. And the same is true of this temple and even of these priests. He's saying they were shadows. They, they were pointers to Jesus and they should have excited you. You should have treated them with reverence and awe. But when you see the substance of it, when God himself has come and when he has gained you access to the Father, he has gained you access to heaven, be in awe of that. Don't keep going back to the shadows. And we can learn from this too, I think. We, we don't have a tabernacle. We don't have a temple that we idolize. But sometimes we get into these weird ways of thought, even when we think about church buildings, right? Or we have certain spots on earth that we start to think of as, this is like sacred ground, or this is a holy place to me. And I'm not saying there can be no reality to that. There are special places, even in my life, that I think about, that I go to, and it conjures up certain things. But where God resides on earth, like what makes a place truly holy, God doesn't reside in a specific building, right? God doesn't reside at some specific GPS coordinates, right? God doesn't reside in this building because it's a church building. God doesn't even reside here at all in one sense. Where God resides on this earth is in his people, like, by his Holy Spirit, where God takes up residence now is by his Spirit in his people. 
individually and collectively. That is where God dwells. That is the sacred spaces on this planet is his people. And so church buildings or monasteries or whatever spots in nature that we like, those places are not holy ground in and of themselves. Uh, people are made holy by the presence of God, by his Holy Spirit. And God is with us this morning. God is with us as we assemble for worship each and every Sunday morning. But the reason he is here among us is not because of where we are, but because of who we are, right? That he is here with us because the Spirit lives within us individually. And when we assemble together, guess what? The Spirit is present with us as we worship. When this room is empty, God's not in here in some special way, right? Just because it's a church building. But when we come together as a people of God to worship, he is. And I expect him to be active. And I expect him to be at work among us because he dwells in us. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians. He wrote to that church. He said, do you not know that, I'll use southern dialect, that y'all are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in y'all? Like he was saying, God lives amongst you. He lives amongst us, not in some special spot on earth, but he lives in his people. And that should give us a hesitation to think of buildings or certain spaces on earth as having this inherent sacred sacredness to it. This, I would say this too. That doesn't mean, as a, as a caveat, that when we... Uh, that we cannot approach God from anywhere on this planet, right? Like there's an importance to coming together as the people of God. He's even going to tell them in chapter 10 to not neglect meeting together. Uh, but So there's an importance to gathering together as the people of God, as the temple of God collectively. But we can and still should, from wherever we are on the planet, be approaching Jesus again and again, approaching God again and again from wherever, wherever we are, because we don't have to come to some special place to address God to worship God, right? We can do that from our home. We can do that in our car. We can do that when we're on vacation. We can approach God from wherever we are on this planet. We do not have to come to some special place on earth because Christ has gained us access to God in the heavens. And wherever we are on this planet, if we're united with Christ, we have access to heaven itself. We can draw near to him. So I want you to, to in closing, I want to go back to the Zoolander thing do some silliness for a second, some hypotheticals. How much more foolish would Derek Zoolander be if so he has that model there on the table and somehow they had already built the whole school and then they set that before him and say, hey, like, here's the actual thing, the actual school. How much more foolish, dumb, ignorant would he be if he just continued then while the school is here, continues to obsess about this model and maybe he had a change of heart and now he's in awe of however they made these little figurines and like he's very impressed by them. That would be foolish and dumb and naive and missing the whole point, right? If he is just obsessing with the model when the reality is right in front of him. But that is what we do when we start to idolize earthly ministers and we start to idolize earthly places of worship because those things were never meant to be obsessed with. They were never meant to be idolized as if they are the ultimate thing. They were pointers to the reality of heaven and what Jesus has gained for us in access to God. There's a pastor, uh, I believe he's passed away now, but he is a pastor in Dallas, Texas uh, named Dr. S. Lewis Johnson. I appreciated this. I'll probably close with this. He said, 
it shouldn't be the experience of believing Christians to enter heaven for the first time at their death. It should be our spiritual experience constantly. We are to live in the sanctuary. I love that. He, he was trying to point out to us, like, man, you don't have to wait till you die to go to heaven. Jesus is in heaven now. And if you have turned from your sin, you have placed your trust in him, you can and ought to be fellowshipping with God there at all times, right? Every time you can be cognizant of that, do so. In your prayers, no, I appreciate how Pastor Larry prays. Often I, I hear him pray and he talks about, he thanks the Lord that he has allowed us into his heavenly throne room. And he's trying, even as he prays, I listen to how people pray. He's trying to remind us, Man, that's not just something we await in the future, but God has given us the privilege and the ability to access him now, to know him now, to, to have his care expressed to us now. That is what Christ has gained for us. That's what his ministry gains for us. The ministry of earthly ministers doesn't do that. Uh, we don't get you into sacred spaces. Jesus does. And the space he gets you into is not some special building, not some room in a tent, the space he gets you into is heaven itself and the very presence of God. So I'll end how I started, that because of Christ's posture and heavenly place, we should idolize neither earthly minister nor space. Amen? Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to get to sing together one last time.